0: limited hangout. I'm your host, Whitney Webb. Though measures implemented in schools in the workplace early last year were then justified as emergency and temporary measures, this quickly gave way to assertions that such measures were here to stay as part of the new normal that would emerge in the post-COVID era. Even though many of the initial justifications for these measures have since been challenged by actual data or no longer relevant, we continue to be told that many of these changes from the past year and a half or so are now permanent and we must accept them without debate or further scrutiny. The new normal is being applied to nearly every sector of the economy in daily life, but the way it's being applied in the field of education is particularly worthy of our attention, as these policies will undoubtedly shape future generations whose physical and mental health and well-being have already taken a hit during the course of the COVID crisis. We are being told that remote learning and high-tech learning tools that replace in-person instruction are here to stay, while discussion of the effects of quarantines, distancing and isolation on the development and well-being of children and teens are largely absent from the discussion. Those demanding these policies not only remain but be expanded are, in many cases, the very bodies that are supposed to represent the best interests of students and education professionals. While they have cloaked their claims as being motivated by public health concerns, The evidence points to that not being the case and instead suggests that ulterior motives provoked by the near-complete corporate takeover of the American education system are to blame. Joining me today to discuss these underreported issues is John Kleesek. John is a college professor whose scholarship focuses on the history of the eugenics movement, particularly the Huxley family, as well as Aldous Huxley's dystopian novel Brave New World. He is the author of the book School World Order, The Technocratic Globalization of Corporatized Education, and is also a contributor to several publications, including Unlimited Hangout, where he has published three articles this year exploring the conflicts of interest between big tech, the U.S. education system, teachers' unions, and globalist oligarchs and their institutions. His most recent piece for Unlimited Hangout was published last week and covers the efforts of the U.S.'s largest teachers union to sell out teachers and students in favor of EdTech, corporations, and UNESCO. I'm very happy to have you on the program, John. How's it going? It's
1: going very good. It is my great pleasure and honor to be here. Thanks so much for
0: having me. Absolutely. So to start off, a lot of your uh, recent work, Uh, For unlimited hangout, anyway, has touched on how certain groups, particularly teachers' unions, have been utilizing measures introduced early on during the COVID crisis, like remote learning, social distancing, and so on, and to push for the permanence of these measures, even while the supposed public health justifications uh, have since evaporated. So, could you lay out some of the evidence that has emerged over the past year or so? that these measures actually do little if anything to halt the spread of disease and how the country's biggest teachers unions are ignoring both this and the damage that these remote learning measures have done to students.
1: Sure. Yeah. Um, so as far as, um, the ineffectiveness of, uh, the social distancing policies and the masking policies and things like that, um, there's, there's several, um, studies that have shown, first of all, that uh, in-person schooling does not increase uh, community tran- transmission. Uh, then, of course, you have the fact that um, school-age students are not highly susceptible uh, to COVID. And I believe that the total number of COVID deaths um, to date, and that's more than one year's worth, right, because they've rolled the, the numbers over. They didn't just start over again the next year and and, you know, go year for year. To tabulate but the total number of, of uh, youth death school age uh, deaths uh, of covid is underneath what it uh, what what the flu typically does. Um, and then of course um, you also have the uh, social distancing policies which uh, in different countries have been at different uh, uh, distances right and so, like you know, science doesn't work that way, right? Like the if the virus empirically has been studied to travel through aerosols six feet, three feet, whatever it is, um, then that's what it is. You can't say that now, as the uh, as the NEA National Education Association uh, lobbied the uh, CDC uh, to roll back their social distancing policies. They the CDC early earlier this year, Uh, They wanted to reduce the social distancing from six foot to three foot um, in order to reopen schools, which, right, um, you know, uh, regardless of whether or not there was less virus sort of being spread around at the time, um, you know, it still travels the same distance. And so the fact that the uh, the NEA wanted them to uh, increase that, that that distance back to six foot. Uh, What that would effectively do is um, it would it would force at least hybrid style learning or blended learning. And that is where so there's distance learning, which is where everything is remote and the students are at home and the teachers are at home and all the learning is transmitted through uh, video conferencing and other uh, learning management software. Um, If we were to go to the three-foot distancing that the CDC basically arbitrarily was going to uh, allow, um, that should be enough space to enable you to fit a student in every desk, right? But if you go six feet, now you have to basically stagger the desks to keep the students six feet apart, which means you can only have half a classroom filled, and that would be the hybrid uh, or blended learning. So blended would be where... Um, You're in the classroom, but you're on a device the whole time and the teacher is basically a facilitator of the modules on the uh, on the the electronic device. The hybrid would be where half the class is in person uh, on three days a week and the other half is doing the distance learning, then it would alternate for the two days in the middle where the other students come to the classroom and the students that were previously in the classroom, they go home to distance learning. And then the next week, you would stagger the three days and the two days, you would alternate that between the two groups. And so what it it essentially does is uh, it forces schools to continue to use these ed tech uh, devices and platforms, which are uh, facilitated through public-private partnerships with uh, big technology corporations. And so what I saw in the ploy of the, uh, the NEA and also the AFT, uh, American Federation of Teachers, their their goal and um, their ulterior motive in my analysis uh, of lobbying the CDC to make its uh, school reopening policies more strict was to basically wedge in uh, the continuation of these big tech public-private partnerships.
0: Well, regarding the distancing thing that you just mentioned and, in the, the three feet, six feet debate, it is worth noting that, um, I think just, uh, not that long ago, I think it was in mid-September, um, the, this former FDA commissioner, Scott, uh, Gottlieb, who, you know, a lot of people have also noted that he's on the board of Pfizer since having left the FDA. Anyway, he went on, um, <clears throat> mainstream news. I think it was Face the Nation. And he essentially came out and said that the, the CDC's, six foot rule was just completely arbitrary, arbitrary being his word, uh, and that no one knows where it came from. (laughs) The decision to use six feet, it was just something uh, decided on essentially by by bureaucrats and not actually based on um, data. Um, And, you know, uh, like, like you were saying, it's not like the, um, the the NEA really provided any scientific evidence uh, to justify six versus three feet in and their their efforts to lobby therein, and as you point out, it has the obvious effect of of forcing a particular learning system upon schools um, in favor of you know institutionalizing at least a partial remote learning, if not entire remote learning, depending on uh, I guess the the whims of the school board and in a particular area. Um, so let's talk a little more about uh, some of these ulterior motives here. Um, so you have detailed this, uh, um, pretty extensively in some of your recent reports, but, um, if you could just summarize maybe, or really just go into as much detail as you feel like, I guess. Um, so what are the, the main conflicts of interest of these teacher, uh, unions, uh, and how are they acting more like lobbying groups for private ed tech corporations instead of, uh, doing what they're supposed to do, which is representing the collective voice of teachers?
1: So let's start with um, the history of uh, the National Education Association's uh, development of education technologies. And we can go back to at least the 1960s um, when they had a project that was through their Department of Audiovisual Instructions. um, And it was called um, Teaching Machines and Programmed Instruction that was related to uh, they all had a project called Educational Implications of Automation, and the, uh, that project was funded with an unrestricted grant from IBM, okay? And then that same year, they came out with that source book called Teaching Machines and Programmed Instruction. Uh, in that book, it was edited by two rock stars in behavioral psychology and programmed instruction, which is which were the early what they called teaching machines, and those was uh, those were the prototypical adaptive learning software, what is now known as adaptive learning software, that were developed by behavioral psychologist B. F. Skinner. So uh, the two editors of the document, there was Arthur A. Lumsdane, and he conducted social psychology research on World War II soldiers in particular, he wanted to test. Uh, various attitudes for, quote, worldwide importance. And then his partner in editing this project was Robert Glazer. And Robert Glazer, not only was he uh, a behavioral psychologist himself, um, but he also worked in uh, theories of program instruction. He was given the E.L. Thorndike Award and the James McKean Cattell Award. Uh, Those two individuals were some of the precursors to the behavioral stimulus response psychology that B.F. Skinner would later develop uh, into operant conditioning. So all this stuff goes back to Wilhelm Wundt in uh, Leipzig, Germany, back in the 1800s. Um, G. Stanley Hall would become uh, the first professor of behavioral psychology in the United States. Um, So... After he went and learned under Wundt and Wundt's, uh, is the world's first uh, psychology laboratory. Hall sets up his own in the United States. and then hundreds and hundreds of PhDs would earn their uh, psychology degrees from G. Stanley Hall, and then they would go into educational psychology and they would uh, then uh, implement those stimulus response program so the stimulus response is basically your classical conditioning uh later they sort of played with the reward and punishment mechanisms uh with uh, key figures like el thorndike and uh that's who uh, robert glazer uh was given an award in honor of uh thorndike was hired by james mckean cattell uh both of these gentlemen at um columbia university uh cattell himself also studied under vygotsky So Thorndike, uh, in that tradition of Wundtian stimulus response psychology, he develops this thing called behaviorism, and he did what was called puzzle box experiments. And these are like the early uh, uh, experiments where they would take, uh, you know, pigeons and rats, put them in mazes and try to get them to uh, perform particular behaviors. So based on those puzzle box experiments with the punishment reward system, B.F. Skinner would then create a system called operant conditioning. It's all basically the same thing. It's all stimulus response. The only difference is the punishment reward cycle. B.F. Skinner added four quadrants, or he added two more quadrants, totaling four. And so the positive and negative punishment, positive and negative reward. And then he created these analog teaching machines, um, which you can see pictures of them at the Smithsonian Institute. They're like, you know, they're analog, so they're like boxes with gears and wheels and a roll of tape. Uh, and Basically, what you would do is, you know, the, in, the, in the classical sense of the word, uh, use Pavlov's dog as an example, right? So um, you provide some type of environmental stimuli like food. The dog has a response, which is salivation. You can associate the environmental stimuli uh, with an, another artificial stimuli. So ring the bell. The dog associates the bell with the food. Eventually, you can just ring the bell the dog salivate so you take this principle and you just change the environmental stimuli to learning stimuli which would be um various uh lessons so question question answer multiple choice matching short answer uh you put it on a reel of tape you can only turn the tape in one direction i always like to use the analogy kind of like the old view masters we used to have when we were kids where you put this uh disc inside these goggles and it's got all these disney pictures and then you pull this a button and then every time you push it the wheel turns so you do the same thing but instead of the disney pictures you've got those learning stimuli um, and so the student either uh punches in like on an ibm punch card the multiple choice box or the matching box you could also scribe on a, on a roll of tape maybe a short answer um, again it only goes in one direction so you can't go back and redo the answer uh, and based on how effectively the student Answers the questions how how quickly and, and how effectively the student would either be advanced to more challenging maybe even advanced learning uh, modules or they might be remediated and then he even had some of these machines that were designed uh, to to d- dispense uh, chocolate if you got a right answer so you, so he included the uh, the reward system in there and the company that developed his, a lot of his prototypical machines was. IBM And in this uh, NEA teaching machines and program instruction document, it has uh, contains articles from BF Skinner. There's a whole section on it. There's also sections, a uh, section of articles from various uh, departments of the military. Uh, th- this book was was public, published in uh, collaboration with the uh, Navy, the Air Force and the U.S. Army's uh, Human Resources Research Office. Um, and so. So they basically got all this stuff uh, put together in the 60s, and then we move forward uh, to the modern adaptive learning software. You just change the, um, the analog system, wheel of tape, gears, and, and things like that, and you just make it digital. And you put, you put it on a window. Uh, you can click with a, with a mouse instead of turning the wheel um, I guess it could be a little more interactive because, you know, they, they might have video games you could play for gamified learning. They might have some, you know, uh, some, some other audiovisual materials, short documentaries and things like that. Um, and perhaps the algorithms can be a little more complex, uh, but, but the, the outcome is the same that um, based on how the student responds to the learning stimuli on the module, that student is going to be funneled into either, um, advanced courses or remediated courses. And all these are going to be geared toward what they call career pathways. And so basically funneling you, uh, into, um, a specific company and basically replacing academics with, with workforce training. So if we, uh, if we jump to the, to the present, IBM itself has, artificial intelligence uh, bot known as Watson, which, by the way, is named after Thomas J. Watson. He's the guy who uh, famously uh, partnered with Hitler to uh, facilitate the data in the concentration camps, which wasn't just, you know, how many prisoners they had, but a lot of that was eugenics data as well. So so we move forward in time here, and IBM... uh, in addition to partnering with uh, the NEA through Davey to develop these prototypical teaching machines, uh, today, now, uh, it has its own AI adaptive learning uh, software, um, which which partners with uh, Sesame Street Workshop and also the Pearson Corporation, which is the largest education corporation in the world. Um, we could also talk about uh, the roots of IBM in partnership, uh, with the AFT. And that pretty much goes back to, um, Albert Shanker, the, uh, one of the first presidents of the American Federation of Teachers. Uh, and he actually was a member of the Trilateral Commission. And uh, funny story about that, the way I even found that out was my, my, uh, my friend Charlotte Izzardbeat, Charlotte Thompson Izzardbeat, wrote the deliberate dumbing down of America. Wrote the um wrote the forward to my book. I uh, and went and spent thirty days with her. She let me go through all her files. Um, her friend Ann Herzer, who was uh, highly active in the uh, Arizona Federation of Teachers, um, she had put in some um, a resolution to ban the Skinner method uh, in the eighties. And she would go to these conferences and she told me that one day she went to a conference and she was able to uh, talk to Shanker face to face. And she basically asked Shanker why the AFT only supported Democratic candidates. And she immediately, I guess he was thinking that uh, he would score some, you know, like right of center points with her by saying this. He says, oh, but I am a member of the Trilateral Commission. And he said he was. She said he was shaking her hand profusely and she wouldn't let it go. He was really nervous. And she said she basically had to yank it away. And I, and I asked her, I said, um, you know, can you document that? She says, no, but you can quote me. So I you know, was willing to do that, but I wanted to find a document, right? So I, so I didn't have to use an anecdote. And I found uh, a document, a speech he gave in the early 80s, where he admits that he was at uh, a meeting of the Trilateral Commission with, quote, bankers and the head of IBM. Okay, and then you can also uh, fast forward to the present. And there's a guy's name is Stan Lito. And um, he was the former president of the IBM Foundation. He has set up a program called P-Tech. Uh, it, it's a charter school program. Uh, and it partners with this IBM platform. Form called Open P Tech. They recently changed the name to Skills Build, and it provides high-tech training for AI, cloud, cybersecurity, quantum, data science, blockchain, all that type of stuff. Um, but he uh, was it, this this project was recently promoted by the current president of the American Federation of Teachers, and that is Randy Weingarten. And actually, in this little video where they're promoting uh, this former IBM Foundation President's project, she says that she'd known him for, quote, decades. Okay, so beginning, at least with, in the 1960s, and then moving all the way up to the present, both unions have had... Uh, direct partnership with IBM, which has been at the core of developing these teaching machines that are now the adaptive learning software uh, that is used through companies like Dreambox. There's Brightspace Leap. There's Clever, which is funded by Bilderberger, Peter Thiel. Um, there's something called Alex, A-L-E-K-S. McGraw-Hill has a Connect app. All of these are adaptive learning software that use that same Skinnerian style of stimulus-response conditioning, and and actually, uh, I should mention that you know you can you can just look that up. It's explicitly, it's always tied to this uh, Skinner's operant conditioning, uh, but it's also tied to they they have a lot in common with the behavioral advertising algorithms that are used for personalized ads, right? And they often use the example of Netflix or Amazon. Uh, Behavioral advertising algorithms that are are basically using uh, the, the same type of data mechanism, which ties into the the workforce training, right? Because, uh, you know, the idea of uh, advertising for you know commercial consumption, and you can just sort of flip it over, flip it around and advertise it for commercial production, right? And then it, it's sort of a
0: feedback loop. You in in discussing that touched on a lot of different. Um, I guess, ed tech technologies, right? So um, I think it might be helpful for people um, to maybe know if you could um, maybe touch on, you obviously mentioned several, um, but what are some of the, you know, uh, technologies uh, that these groups, big tech, um, these teachers unions, IBM, and what have you, um looking to implement widely uh, at the current time. And, uh, you know, if you could give a, maybe a summary of some of their risk and uh, and who benefits. The schools where
1: I'm at currently, the, the main platforms that they're using are what are called the learning management systems. And so this is like this dashboard that you're going to use that's got all these different mod- learning modules on it. So there's Desire to Learn, there's Blackboard, and then there's there's others as well. Uh, Canvas is another one. Um, The the schools where I teach, I I have to use D2L and I have to use uh, Canvas. Now, they don't necessarily come hooked up with the adaptive learning software, but like in the D2L platform that I use, there's a little link for Brightspace Leap, and that's the adaptive learning algorithm uh, with different adaptive learning uh, functions as well. But that would be the one that would data mine the student's psychometrics, right? They're cognitive behavioral algorithms. And uh, the dangers in that, um, well, there's there's twofold, okay? So, so one is basically what they're really looking for is what they call performance-based algorithms. So they're looking to see what the student can do more than what the student knows. In other words, they're looking to see that the student can comply with the, uh, Directives, whether they be learning directives or workforce directives, rather than uh, what they conceptually know and have a higher understanding of. So it, it's basically um, dumbing down learning to uh, simply uh, can you perform uh, the the workforce they call them competencies that, uh, that that a particular company might want. Okay, so they're not teaching you like uh, they're teaching you what to think, not not how to think. Um, the other danger in, involved with that is that um, these are basically, these dashboards are are permanent. And so the adaptive learning software is not just looking at how well you perform on the, the immediate module in front of you. It's aggregating your performance over time. So let's say, you know, you're a student, like I remember when I was in school, and I would get bored with like standardized tests and stuff and like, Especially if it was multiple choice, I just start spelling things like you know bad dad tab, abacadaba. You know, just get just get this done, right? Especially the the state standardized test because they knew it didn't have an effect on my grade. Um, so let's say the student is just wants to get this module done, right? They're bored with the with the module and and they're doing that, uh, you know, repeatedly for a, for a week or two, and the and the teacher says, Hey, you know, you really need to you know get get up to bar here, you're not going to pass. Now the student actually starts trying. And they do really good on the next module. Well, they're not going to uh, immediately advance you to the higher the higher learning, uh, uh, you know, or to the more advanced curriculum. They're going to go, well, you did really good on that one, little Johnny, but, you know, you've been messing up for two weeks straight. So, you know, this, this probably is just a fluke. We're going to go ahead and remediate you a couple more times just to make sure, right? And then uh, let's say, you go from one school to the next, Um, you know, and and later we'll talk about how this can be integrated on the the blockchain system through the, through the, uh, some of the the vaccine passports and some other uh, blockchain platforms. But um, let's say you go to a new, new class or a new teacher, right. And um, but, but all the teachers are using the same dashboard and right. uh, They're all using the same adaptive learning app, which again, right. It has your history on it. So, you know, I know that when I was learning, uh, you know, when I was in school and, and then wasn't the best student and, you know, I was kind of a goofball. Um, but there was there were certain teachers that they would nip that in the bud early on. Like, like day one, I would try to be a class clown and they basically let me know that that wasn't going to fly there and I would perform perfectly fine there right and they would say I you know, say stuff to the other teachers like I don't have a problem with him like you know I don't know what you're doing in your classroom but he he learns just fine in my class well if if you were to go if you're the student and you go to another class um where maybe a a teacher has a different approach and maybe they maybe they see more potential in you and they and they're able to get that out of you they they still have to work with the dashboard they still have to uh, they're largely not in control of what modules the adaptive learning is going to give you. So even though they might see the potential in you and even though they might uh, have, have an idea of a different way to get you uh, to learn, you know, or to, to perform better. Um, there's they're going to be you're going to be stuck having to stay in whatever uh, career pathway or whatever algorithm that the adaptive learning has on it. So so one is basically it's just funneling students uh, into into the workforce system, making them, you know, little workforce drones. But then the other one is that that data is going to it's going to follow them and track them everywhere. And there's there's no way to just, you know, uh, come to the light one day and just do a 180 and then and basically start from fresh.
0: Right. So I think it's important that we talk a little bit about um, the some of the different aspects of this here. Um, so um, one thing I, I want to bring yeah. up first, or, well, there's two things I, I want to bring up based on what you just said. One is um, I was actually just uh, a, a day or two ago, this article came out about um, uh, the seven tech trends shaping smart education in the post-COVID era, what have you. And one of the things there, it's, a, it's number three, is a performance analysis systems, uh, which is basically um, what, what you touched on there about, you know, what measuring and, and, and gauging students based on what um, they, they can do. And I do want to point out, and I'm sure you're aware of this, too, that there are actually some ed tech companies uh, that are trying to take this to the next level. Like, I'm sure some people may have seen these, like, headsets. I think it's a Harvard company. And, like, a Chinese tech firm, they're piloting them a lot in, in China right now. And they're supposed to measure, like, attentiveness um, and things like that. And they gauge, like, a, a child's uh, attentiveness over the course of the day. They're being used on, like, elementary school kids um, over there. And, you know, it, so, it, you know, it it, it looks like, <laughs> based on where they're trying to take this, that it's going to be a lot farther um, than than even what you described, that the the plans here are to really um, uh, take these efforts to use technology to shape uh, children into um, you know good little drones or whatever. However you want to frame it, it's all very dystopian. Um, you know, uh, it is really uh, coming. We're we're moving into a level even beyond what we are seeing. Uh, right now, at least uh, in the US and and, and countries that sort of follow the US model. Um, But in terms of like data mining, and and AI, I I think it's worth keeping in mind here. um, You know, I've talked about this in my work on and off um, over the past, um, you know, two years or so, um, that the, you know, the fourth industrial revolution and all of that, the data is the new oil era, um, you know, the, the oligarch class of this fourth industrial revolution is going to be those who mine uh, and or control the most data um, in the world. And so I think a lot of these um, different entities recognize that and see education as the greatest opportunity, specifically the use, uh, right? Whether in education or maybe um, I don't know, online gaming that the kids use and stuff like that uh, sort of see that as the big opportunity to secure their, um, economic, uh, position in the world to come, um, if you want to call it that. So there's, like, a lot of really, um, sinister, uh, motivations. I, well, I would call them sinister, uh, but it's, I guess it's economic at the end of the day, uh, but that are seeking to use kids and the education system more broadly as a way to, um, harvest data. And, of course, um, one of the, the things that data is being used to is is to feed uh, artificial intelligence algorithms that um, if you're familiar uh, with my work on welcome leap earlier this year, you know, there's a major effort to basically uh, make AI that develops like a child's brain. So what better way uh, to make AI algorithms that do that by, you know, mining data from the brains of actual children uh, to do that. And that seems like where a lot of these um, ed tech trends um, are are heading and of course they've been working on selling this stuff to the public for years you know I'm uh I'm like turning 32 soon so I'm like guess I'm not that old but when I was in um like middle and high school they started with the whole like smart board thing it's like a big controversy in the in the school district I was in because the the head of the school board had like some under the table deal with the company that that made them you know, typical, (laughs) um, but they were really clumsy and they got in the way of teachers that were used to using whiteboards and could teach effectively with whiteboards. They were forcing them to like learn this clumsy new system. They were installed over the whiteboard in such a way that you couldn't like lift it up to use the whiteboard underneath. You were like obligated to use this clunky thing. And this was like, you know, a while ago, I'm sure the smart boards of today are probably, you know, maybe slightly more functional. Maybe not. I mean, (laughs) who really knows? Um, beyond people that are have to use them every day. Like I don't really know, Uh, but uh, you know, that stuff sort of can seem kind of innocent at first. And like, I guess, uh, you know, it, it helps to see the big picture to really understand what all of this stuff is, is a part of. And I think um, a lot of the value in in your work is that you go uh, really far back to the origins of, of all these trends and these different conflicts of interest and shaping What we're seeing today. And not only do you do that, you also look forward. You really provide uh, the big picture the way it it needs to be shown, you know, from 40 plus uh, years ago to where they're trying to take this by 2050. So um, I'd like to talk about a little bit about um, that stuff first. I don't know if you'd either like to start with what comes, uh, (laughs) what, what they plan. To come in the decades to come, or you know what, uh, how this sort of formulated over, um, you know, a couple decades ago um, or several decades ago. Um, but I think both are important parts of this discussion.
1: So you mentioned one thing. So the performance
0: based um, algorithm. So
1: um, the current Secretary of Education, Miguel Cardona. Um, there's this. There's this push to change. Um, to, they want to uh, stall or entirely get rid of um, the standardized tests uh, that they use um, to basically measure where students are at for the year, right? And so the, the argument is, is that uh, because of COVID, because of the lockdowns, um, you know, people no one's had a normal uh, school year, right? And so how can we, how can we hold them to the same standards, the same tests uh, when they haven't had the same schooling experience, right? Um, and so one of the ways to, uh, there's always been associated with the community schooling movement and, and Cardona is, is affiliated with, or he was uh, endorsed by Linda Darling uh, ha- Hammond, who uh, is one of the pioneers in community schools, goes back to uh, a guy named Ted Sizer and then the, the Good Lad study, but something that was always integral to this community schooling model was something called performance-based assessments and performance-based assessments uh you know back in the day before they had the algorithms they would pitch stuff like oh it'd be like you know maybe like a a presentation at the end of the year an oral exam or like a portfolio of all the things you've done this year uh but now that um we have these algorithms right We could basically just we don't even need standardized tests. Let's just aggregate all the algorithms together at the end of the year and give this student, uh, you know, some some sort of an overall learning score for the semester uh, or the or the school year. And then that can replace um, that can just replace the the old standardized tests that that we would take. Um, And. You know that some of those algorithms could be uh, what are also known as not just the cognitive behavioral algorithms for for, uh, from the adaptive learning software, but then there's also something called social emotional learning. And when you mentioned the headband, uh, that's a company called BrainCo. And yes, it's uh, some of the people that developed it are out of Harvard, but uh, it's the actual manufacturing is in partnership with a a Chinese state owned electronics company. It's one of the largest, uh, state owned companies in, in China. Uh, and you can actually see, um, there's a wall street journal piece that shows the students wearing those, those headbands. Uh, and you, they also, it also shows that uh, those social emotional algorithms so the headband is measuring like is the student paying attention does he like what he, what he or she sees uh, on on the whiteboard um, um, are, they, um, are they are they are uh, they engaged enough right these are all these different affective algorithms right um, and it goes on the social credit dashboard and not only can the Teachers see in real time, you know, which students are, you know, resisting or, or you know, uh, uh, don't like the, uh, have a negative affect in response to to the uh, to the learning stimuli, or which students are, you know, daydreaming. Uh, it also goes to mom and dad, right? They have a little app for it. so they so a teacher might be like, hey, you know, we see, saw your your attention algorithms were off today, and then you go home. And mom and dad, right? like, hey, we saw your attention algorithms were off today. And so, you know, it's it's um, it, it ties in not just to the the big data social credit system, but, you know, the, the sort of the snitch society that, that comes with that, where everybody sort of reinforces the social credit by uh, by monitoring each other. And uh, so you mentioned that all these algorithms are basically designed to build artificial intelligence and so you know if you're going to build not just what they call dumb AI which is which, which could be a cell algorithm socio-emotional learning algorithm or a cognitive behavior algorithm which has a very narrow data mining function, uh, if you can aggregate those two, the, the effective data and the thinking data together, so, you know, emotional data and, and thinking data together, right, now, now you're moving in the direction of what they call general AI, which is, is artificial intelligence that can mimic the thinking of a human being. And so, you know, they pitch it as like these algorithms are teaching you, they're helping you learn, but the algorithms learn way faster than you do. So really, what's happening is you're teaching AI, and you know I think that one of the um, one one of the advantages of using um, because you could you could get similar algorithms you know uh, by data mining uh, you know workers at work in terms of how efficiently they they perform on their telework modules and things like that. Um, but if you data mine different students at different phases in their uh development what you can do is you can sort of use as like a spreadsheet for machine learning you can take the different age groups and you can fit them into some of the developmental psychological stages developed by like erickson and piaget and then you could by looking at how the algorithms change from each group to the next right you could aggregate all of that together and you could not just come up with an algorithm that mimics uh, a seven-year-old or a 15-year-old, right, in terms of uh, this humanoid AI, you could teach the AI to learn from itself, right, to recursively, uh, m- with machine learning, data mine its, its own current uh, state and-, and-, and advance on it based on how the algorithms progress from the different uh, stages in-, in the children's developmental psychology. Um, And, you know, all of this eventually plugs into um, not just a social credit system, but, you know, ultimately when we go from the cognitive behavioral algorithms that are on a screen, then we go to wearables, right? Like, so we mentioned the BrainCo headband, but we also have like the Gates Foundation's galvanic skin response monitors, and other wearable devices that can get your emotional algorithms. Uh, we're, we're a transition, we're one step closer to implantables, right? And So so this is all on a, a progressive trajectory towards transhumanism where eventually, uh, you know, whether it be brain-computer interface like Elon Musk Neuralink or, you know, someone like Ray Kurzweil says eventually the highest level will be you'll have nanobots inside you uh, and that would, you know, through your whole nervous system, uh, and eventually we're, we merge with this AI and we become, uh, you know, this 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 cyborg species. And, you know, people like Kurzweil say they're going to become gods by doing it. But I'm pretty sure that uh, all of the little kitties and children that are getting data mined are going to just be a little like hive ants that, uh, you know, plug into the god AI oligarchs.
0: I just find it so funny that that Ray Kurzweil thinks he's going to be a god. He looks like a little troll man. <laughs> I don't know when I look at hard with all those think dogs. of a dwarf, um yeah,
1: yeah, he's taking all those
0: vitamins, he's trying not to die. I don't think <laughs> he's gonna make it, <laughs> yeah, we'll see, but you know that this whole transhumanist uh mentality, well, I think people listening uh to this probably know that I'm a big uh critic of of that, um, and a lot of these guys uh really involved in that space clearly have some sort of dysphoria with their um I guess, natural form and think that they can sort of get out of that, um, by merging with machine and somehow that's going to solve all of humanity's problems. Um, you know, it's just, uh, it's intense anyway. So in, in speaking along those lines though, right, these people essentially worship, uh, the singularity, super intelligent AI that they haven't been able to trigger yet. I think they expected to have that by now and they have not. And that's why they're so keen to data mine, um, the brains of little kids, uh, and teenagers and, and all that, uh, in hopes of, of triggering, uh, that. But, um, this is sort of alluded to in a sense in this report that you wrote about, um, a, a while ago, uh, in, in, uh, in a, in a report for Unlimited Hangout, the UNESCO 2050 report, um, that sort of talks about um, AI and virtual reality and all these different technologies as sort of a, a being implemented in education as sort of a segue for the whole of society into this more than human world uh, as they call it. And they, they, they it as having a regenerative their words <laughs> and equalizing um, effect on education as part of the sales pitch. But I really found um, that particular report about where UNESCO plans to take um education as just jaw dropping. And as we can get to um in a little bit if we if we have time for the the history uh bit, you know, UNESCO has essentially been guiding a lot of the the ed tech implementation in the US uh for decades now. So the fact that this is where they plan to take this um by twenty fifty, you know, in the next thirty ish years or so, uh, is pretty alarming. So um it, would you would you mind giving an overview of this UNESCO 2050 report and uh, its its vision for education and humanity? Yeah. Um,
1: so you're so you're you're right. It, it gives like uh, the rhetoric is very Rogerian, and that means like Carl Rogers is this psychologist that basically said, uh, and it, it, they they adapted his uh, his counseling strategies to rhetoric. Uh, and in classical rhetoric, you know, you have like a thesis. And then that's your main point. And you have an argument to development and then you, right. You develop your points, uh, throughout the argument. And by the end, you hope to persuade the other person. And R- R- Carl Rogers said something like, well, no, no, you s- don't start with your thesis. Start with what the, what, you know, the other side values, try to find some, some area where there's common ground and then slowly like bring them to your side. So, you know, there is all this rhetoric in there, like, oh, you know, uh, uh, data is dangerous and, you know, big tech is dangerous, but we still got to do it. We just got to do it right in a way that's equitable and, uh, you know, through stakeholder capitalism and, and, you know, public-private partnerships and things like that. Uh, they like to use the term commons now. I think they, you know, I, I think they feel like that uh, doesn't have the same baggage as stakeholder capitalism and public-private partnerships, but, you know, it's, it's, it's basically just a spin on the same uh, the same concept so um, you know in that in that document uh, one of the phrases they, they call it is learning to become and so what they foresee is the death of the school that's a quote and then they say which will be replaced by an infin- infinity of devices and approaches strongly supported by digital technology and artificial intelligence all of which point in the direction of hyper personalization of learning in such scenarios schools are seen as obsolete institutions. Teachers become expendable professionals who could easily be replaced by other forms of monitoring and supervision. Um, And this kind of dovetails with uh, a 2014 UNESCO uh, Intergovernmental Council for the Information for All program. And in, in, in this document, Um, Again, they do the Rogerian thing where they're kind of like looking at both sides. And uh, I'll just read this part. It says, scientists are discussing the convergence of nano, bio and cognitive technologies, the development of which is in turn closely linked to information and communication technologies and which have an equally powerful potential to influence sociocultural processes. Specialists are predicting even more fundamental changes by the middle of the 21st century. Artificial intelligence will attain the level of natural intellect, and in a number of cases will surpass it. Machine-human hybrids, cyborgs, and humanoid-robot androids created on a biological basis will become more and more widespread. Also, becoming even more widespread are the ideas that technological intervention in the human organism, fundamental changes to the nature of man, are describable and beneficial, in that they enable a biological evolution which is truly controlled. So that's that learning to become, right? We're taking over evolution through this transhumanist project. And then the quote ends with, Some call this worldview transhumanism. Some call it technological fascism. Either way, our future lies more and more in the hands of new engineers, genetic scientists, and programmers. So basically what they say is it doesn't matter what you call it. This is what we're doing, right? And they admit that – or you could call it technological fascism, but basically get used to it. And you can tie that – this goes all the way back to the beginning of UNESCO. So Julian Huxley, who was the first director general of uh, UNESCO back when it was created – um, he's, he's got, um, there's several quotes in uh, UNESCO, its purpose and its philosophy where he just basically says, yeah, you know, Hitler with his race hygiene, you know, he, he applied it the wrong way. Uh, but we, in order to uh, prevent what he said, the uh, dysgenic um, degradation, we need to in- institute a truly scientific eugenics project. Okay. And later in 1957, he writes a, a book called New Bottles for New Wine, which is, you know, using going back to this wanting to be God's thing. That's a play on a, on a biblical scripture. Um, and he basically says in there, this is where he coins the term transhumanism. And, and what he says is we could still do, uh, you know, uh, eugenics proper in the traditional sense of like biological selection. He says, but actually uh, evolution is, is really advanced mainly through what he says, he quote, machines and ideas and so interfacing uh machines and then right uh plugging in ideas or algorithms uh into those machines that sort of um create this new this new species right and so that's um so so it's been unesco's project uh since the beginning and it was you know in in the 80s with the in this article i also discussed the unesco study 11 and, and in the 80s Uh, They basically started setting up uh, the groundwork for the information technologies, setting up the multinational markets through with partnerships like IBM, again, uh, Microsoft and Apple uh, to sort of get all of the uh, IT disseminated across national borders. But then they were also uh, in that partnership. It was a regional partnership that combined Western capitalist nations with Eastern Bloc communist and socialist nations. And in in a a precursor document in the early 70s, they basically said, well, the best model for implementing this at the state level is the Eastern Bloc socialist communist model because the centralized statecraft enables them to, uh, you know, properly manage uh, the technologies. But uh, in order to create a global system, they had to use the multi-national uh, technology corporations uh, to, to standardize or to disseminate the products across those lines. But once they get in there, right, they really, even in the Western capitalist countries, as we're seeing now, right, they eventually wanted to transition to the centralized statecraft, right. And I should also mention that the OECD uh, was uh, involved in this this network. Uh, through a uh, partnership with uh, Assistant Secretary of Education in the U.S. Department of Education, Donald Sinise. Uh, and that OECD project was trying to come up with standards like they have for uh, basic electronics, uh, but he wanted to come up with them on an international scale in terms of the courseware. At, at the very same time, uh, academia was on board with this. They, uh, In several uh, journals, academic journals, in particular, Technological Horizons in Education, um, they were publishing some of the UNESCO Study 11 white papers uh, alongside advertisements for IBM and Microsoft and Apple products. Uh, so what you had was you had national governments, both uh, 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 Western capitalists and uh, Eastern Bloc communist socialists, you had the multi multinational technology corporations and academia all basically colluding to set up this network, and then you just move move forty years into the future. We have COVID. Uh, we issue a lockdown, and now uh, basically the UNESCO policy. You know, it's it, as we can see all across the world. Right, everybody's doing the same thing. It's essentially a, a global agenda. So they basically snap their fingers and whatever domestic policies you thought you had get uh overwritten by this UNESCO project.
0: It's so wild especially when you can you consider what you brought up about Julian Huxley uh you know basically charting the course for UNESCO in this direction and how he was head of the Eugenic Society and like all all this other stuff. I mean it's just like it's almost too crazy to believe but it's it's fact. Um, you know, it's, it's very easy to document, but it's, it's surreal, um, when you first learn about it. At, at least in my case, it was. I don't know if you want to talk more, uh, any more about the history, but I'm interested, uh, since you are an education professional, uh, to get your experience with vaccine, uh, mandates in schools, um, and, uh, your views on, uh, why that's happening, um, in the education, why there's a focus on having that happen in the education system in particular, of course, we know that there's um a big push for it also in healthcare settings, but it's it's definitely a similar uh push is taking place in the u s with within the education system as well so um, what are your thoughts? so I guess I'll start anecdotally so um <clears throat> The
1: the mandates, well, now they're federal, but but they came to my state, my home state of Illinois, before uh, Biden did the federal mandates. Um, And at the beginning of it, uh, I'm active. I'm at at a couple different community colleges. Uh, I kind of lay low lower in some of the schools than others, and then there's one school in particular that I am very active in my union. Um, And in that school. I don't know what the what the word was in the other from the uh, from the administrators at the other school. But at this other particular school, um, it was told to me that the uh, uh, the head of finance was going to make everybody. If you didn't get your vaccine, you you had to test. And he was going to make us who are online have to get the test as well, which is. Obviously has nothing to do with public health. And even in the uh, Illinois governor's executive order, it specifically says that, uh, you know, when it defines um, public school employees, it has to be somebody that's on campus. At least once a week for more than 15 minutes a day, not in close contact with other people. All those things had to fall into place for you to be uh, to fall under the mandate. But this this particular uh, administrator (laughs) wanted to get us to to test. And uh, I was ready to leave my job at that point because they're not getting I'm not getting a jab and you're not getting my bio data through the tests either. And and I'm just not complying with the nonsense at this point. And, uh, that's, I'm going to draw my line over here. I've been patient and very, um, generous and very, uh, surgical with the, the, um, uh, the pushback that I've given, you know, I've, I've frequently, uh, and press them on what is your contact tracing policies and things like that uh during the whole lockdown process that's why i didn't i uh, that's why i chose to stay online obviously you know house wins either way because if i stay online i'm using all of the the technologies that we just talked about right uh but if i got to choose between you know taking the jab and, you know, uh, facilitating some data mining for the time being, you know, that, that seems to be the lesser of two evils for, for me. Uh, but when they asked me, are you, uh, are you, would you, are you comfortable with coming back to class when we, when we're going to reopen in the fall? And I knew, I knew that these, these mandates were coming, but also they, they could not give me a clear answer on what they were, what their contact tracing policy was like, was it just, uh, were they going to make us use a bump or an app? Uh, where was it just going to be word of mouth? Um, and you know, I wasn't going to go there, you know, like, like if I were to go and teach a class and some kid goes and gets a PCR test, who's in my class and needs test positive, you know, now what I, and my whole class have to quarantine for two weeks. And so we're going to basically play musical chairs between the classroom and the home VR, like, um, uh, virtual platform like you know if, if i'm gonna do that i'll just stay home the whole time i'm not gonna play uh this ad hoc game so i i was not um luckily right i uh, did not fall under the the uh, status where i had to get that that uh the jab uh, but but again they were going to make us test and uh, you know at other schools they've done that there was a report uh uh where a student from rutgers <laughs> was told he couldn't attend online virtual classes unless he got jabbed or tested. And, um, so, you know, it was, I thought, I figured that would probably come down the pipe eventually. I didn't think it would come on the door immediately. Um, but luckily, uh, uh, the, the folks at that particular union, um, who, who, you know, uh, most of them are are vaccinated, but they basically agreed that, you know, we don't think you should have to take it. Like we got ours. Like, you know, and, and we certainly don't think you should have to take it if you're not around anybody. So we were able to bargain to, um, to get that, um, to, to not have the online students, well, teachers, we can only bargain for the teachers. The online teachers have, have to get the jab. So I, you know, or or the testing. So for now, I still have a job for another semester. Um, and I'm not getting a jab or, or a test. Right. And uh, when it comes to that, like I said, I, I uh, I've got friends that do work tree service and construction. I'm, I'm used to do that. I'm happy to go do that again. I'd, I'd rather I'd rather work any other job that I can than get the, the jab or play the, the testing game. Um, so why do I think is the uh, why do I think the head of finance even suggested that? Like, right. What would be why would what would they get out of that? Um, well, it would cost them more money to begin with, right? Because they're paying for the tests. So the, so right. So why would again why would they pay for something that doesn't have any bearing on public health? Well, it's to get you in the database, right? Um and in Illinois, uh there's the we the, the state database to register vaccine certificates is called the verify vax system or vax verify system. And it partners with Experience. Which is right? It's a, it's a financial institution. at right, a credit reporting agency. Um, and at the same time, in Illinois in 2018, the uh, General Assembly set up a task force on, on blockchain automation. And it's got all these interesting infographics in it that show you like uh, how they can like tokenize like your uh, your WIC or your Snap. That's your um, your different forms of. Um, uh, social social aid for like mothers and, and uh, people who can't afford food and stuff like that. Uh, and like it was showing how not just, it wouldn't just automate like, Hey, here's your snap ticket. It's like, Hey, you didn't eat such good food this month. We're going to give you less tokens or, Hey, you did a good job eating right this month. We're going to go ahead and give you some more tokens. And then it had other stuff for like sustainability and like emergency management. Um, so, You also, during that uh, same year, that's when the ID2020 project was set up, which is this global digital ID project. And they also have, uh, are creating a a blockchain, uh, it's called the Good Health Pass. It's basically a vaccine passport or or electronic health record. I believe it could facilitate, you know, testing records as well, like the the ones that they wanted us to do. Um, And this, you know, ID2020, that's, you got Microsoft, Rockefeller Foundation, MasterCard, and then you got the Global Alliance for Vaccines and Immunizations, Um, and at the same time, you've got Illinois Senator Bill Foster, uh, who was attending ID2020 conferences, and he was, like, promoting the, the vaccine passports and promoting the blockchain system, so... I, I'm adding all that together to suggest that the reason they wanted us to test was to get us in the, the database that's going to funnel into the Verify Vax, which is going to be managed by a credit agency, which eventually uh, when they get the blockchain vaccine passports in, that will aggregate all that data together and that will be the social credit ledger that'll be your social credit system and you know your access to the public square and private services is going to be based not just on did you are your uh your jabs up to date but they'll add all that data that we talked about the cognitive behavior the social emotional learning workforce competency mental health they can put criminal background checks on there uh they're going to aggregate all that stuff together and that's going to uh, determine not just access for the public square and private services, but, you know, can you get a job? How much does stuff cost? Do you have to pay extra fees? Like, you know, if, you're, if your health records are low enough, you know, like a pizza costs you a $100 because we don't want you to eat that. All kinds of stuff like that. Um, and I should mention that at my school, I did a little video on it on my channel. Uh, you can check it out on my shoot my YouTube. It's called – it has to do with uh, – there's a – as I – I was able, I'm an adjunct uh, and I was able to become the adjunct representative uh, for the CARES committee, which oversaw how we were going to spend the money, uh, the CARES money. And most of it was like to get these new technology platforms. And, you know, every single time I'm like, hey, what's the privacy? I mean, the the proposals were so vague. It was, um, I want to say shameful. I want to be nice. It was, it was um, disappointing about that. Um, you know, I, I want to say, like, hey, can we say something about the efficacy of this product? Can we say something about like the privacy statement? And uh, one one project in particular was a company called Platinum Educational Group. Now, this thing facilitates adaptive learning testing, right? So it's got these adaptive learning algorithms, and it puts it in a national database. Well, this company also partners with a company called Corporate Screening. Corporate Screening. Is a company that specializes in compliance background checks, and if you go on their website, you can see they do everything from criminal background checks, digital i nines, uh, finger biometric fingerprinting, uh, workforce competence or compliance records. They have a Verify Students app for right student records, and then they have an Immunitrax digital vaccine platform. Right, so this one company is aggregating all of that data together, your learning data, your workforce data, your criminal background data, and your healthcare data. Uh, And then they even have another platform that's called, it's a blockchain platform called Self-Sovereign Identity Management. And the graphics they use for it has got, these these students, they've got these devices in their hands, and the device is beaming a light on their face, and then their face is lit up with a facial recognition algorithm, and then next to them is, like, a little dashboard with, like, a little avatar of them, and it's got all these different, like, graphs and metrics, bar graph, line graph, pie graph, and, you know, basically that's that's uh, the aggregate of all the social credit algorithms on the device that's registering it through the the student's biometrics and i gave them a 20 minute video report it was very similar to the one i did on um uh on my channel uh and i showed them even the graphics you know this this facial recognition graphics and i am sad to say i was the only person that voted no on that but uh but that's just another example of why i think um Why the unions are supporting the the vaccine mandates, Uh, because just like they wanted to roll back the social distancing to get the data mining technologies in there, they want the mandates to put the blockchain platform in to aggregate all that data into the social credit system, which can be. Uh, finance through what they call impact investing, uh, investing. And actually, the CDC itself promotes impact investing for what they call community school projects. The AFT also promotes impact investing. And then a bunch of the, a- the AFT's partners uh, in- implement uh, the impact uh, investment. So basically, these companies can then, through the career pathways, uh, Basically, give the students like these uh, pay for success loans uh, to you know follow these modules into a particular career pathway, so that they can basically not just track everything through the social credit algorithms, but like direct where they want you to go through the social credit algorithm.
0: Wow, you really laid out a lot there. Um, I think people who are familiar with uh, my work uh, <laughs> will know. That uh, there are obviously efforts in the works to create and enact that type of system, um, not just in the West, but globally. And any sort of uh, crisis that can be used to accelerate that system um, or any sort of uh, move that can be used to entrench it is likely to be tried um, by the people uh, behind it and the people that or the stakeholders uh that that stand to benefit most uh, from this and um i think it's it's pretty clear that that students are a major uh target of this uh you know um i don't remember the exact quote but um i think stalin is famous for saying something about you know you you basically get them when they're young and you know it's much easier to to get them to go along with that type of stuff than when you know someone's in an, an adult and has lived you know a certain amount of years without that type of uh, either ideology or, or system or or what have you. Um, and I think there is a is a clear effort here uh, to do that. And I think really this vaccine passport system, which, you know, I, I think honestly at this point, you know, people know it as vaccine passports right now, um, but it's really sort of a misnomer in a sense for the system that they want to implement. It's really much more far-reaching than vaccines. You know, vaccination records is going to be part of it, but it's really... Um, A digital biometric identity that's really your gateway um, into this data-enabled existence that they want everyone uh, to be forced to be a part of if they want to participate in society, essentially. I don't know if you uh, agree with that. with that view or not, but it it seems like to me, a lot of the extremes we've seen uh, pursued uh, or or the extremes in this particular vaccination campaign, I think one of the things underlying that, um, you know, I think a lot of people are looking at it also, you know, as a depopulation event and maybe that's the case. I think time will tell, but I think ultimately from what we can see now, anyway, in, in the immediate that, you know, a major, motive for the aggressiveness of this vaccination campaign and the mandates and all of that is to force people to uh, adopt such a system and then they'll expand it and normalize it from there Um, and that definitely seems to be happening on a very um on a very broad scale and you know once you have um your ability to access places and services dictated by a qr code they can connect that qr code to anything essentially um or add any sort of require any sort of data be added to that uh down the line. You know, really this the sky's the limit if we let them advance this. Yeah, no, a hundred hundred percent. And the reason why
1: I always tie it to the social credit system, which as you mentioned, is right, it's it's been set up in China, but one of the main investors is BlackRock, okay? Uh and Salesforce also partners with the Alibaba. Fun guys. <laughs> right? Uh, Mark Benioff, right? And um the reason, the first time I saw the Journeyman TV documentary, it was while I was in in the middle of the book. And I, and I was, you know, I didn't, I had, hadn't known about it. And I'm, I'm just looking at, I used to work for an online tutoring company. Um, and it partnered with, one day it tells us, hey, IBM's Watson's going to partner with you. Like, it's going to like ride shotgun while you do your stuff. And I was like, what? Like this AI thing? And then, I, and then it clicked with me. I was like, oh, that's why when you had to tutor on that company, there was a very rigid format for the order in which you give feedback. Well, that's for machine learning. If, if everybody's doing their own thing, the, the uh, Watson is not going to be able to figure out the patterns. So they want you to put it in these preset categories so that you can train Watson to replace your job. And so that right around that time and there was other things going on with public-private partnerships over here in Illinois at the time, but when I one I saw that, and that's when I started, well, hold on. If they're doing if they're gonna be data mining me, and then they're basically this thing's gonna outlearn me, and then it's gonna outteach me, and then it's gonna replace me, not only will we be automating physical labor, we'll be automating intellectual labor, right? Uh, And so then that led me to looking at other, you know, the the, the social emotional learning stuff. And then I ran into the the wearables and and then I'm looking at how the laws are allowed to facilitate this in various ways uh, through what they call assistive technologies uh, in particular with a lot of the stuff was pitched for people who had like learning disabilities, right. Or emotional disabilities and things like that. Uh, Now, you know, they just want to give it to everybody, but I'm looking at all these different pieces in place and I'm like, so all this stuff is going to get put together and then it's going to all come together in one like centralized system. When I saw the social credit system, I said, that's it. That's what it looks like when you put all of it together. Um, and so 100 percent, that's what the end game is. And look, at the beginning of the, the pandemic, uh, I hate that word, at the beginning of the lockdowns, <laughs> at the beginning of the lockdowns, we were a couple weeks behind Italy and China. And I already knew that they had the social credit system in China. So I looked, there, I said, what are they, how are they using the social credit system for contact tracing to manage this? Because I remember they gave us all like, Hey, everybody gets free, uh, um, free, free Wi-Fi and free um, your, your, your phones, right? You get unlimited data on your phones. I'm like, well, that's so they can track where we're at for contact tracing. So when I look over in China, they had the QR code system immediately. And I, i had my students reading about this qr code uh for the, the immunity passports um from from day one okay and you know having them read about it and say hey you know what do you think about this obviously most people are horrified you know, not everybody but but a lot of them and uh so i said that's what they're gonna um, implement over here eventually before this is over they're gonna try for two things they're gonna try for mandatory vaccines and the vaccine passports, and then you know, at the one school, another school where I'm at, not the one I mentioned, but a different school, as an adjunct, I bounce around a different community colleges. Um, th- they're showing us the app that they want us to use. It's called Cleared for Work. It's a QR code, and they called it the Magic Green Pass, just like
0: the right the Green Pass in what was it? Is in Israel, I believe. Uh, yeah, it's called that in Israel, and I think the EU too is using that name. In Chile, they say Mobility Pass. <laughs> because it gives you only slightly more freedom of movement. It's, uh, it's hard right. to I laugh. Think used,
1: I think they used "freedom pass," the free pass, or "freedom pass" as a, uh, a colloquialism in, in the UK at some point too. So you know, and then and then the the graphics that they they showed. They had, oh, they had this video like with this happy music, like yeah, it's really cool and neat. Like if, if ever if you've ever seen the uh, when Microsoft they had come out with the daily pass system. They were going to use it in LA unified district a few months back and probably are using it now. Um, but it was the same, you know, these cartoons and all this happy music. And to me, it's, it's horrific to see such like Sesame street style, like, you know, graphics and propaganda with this authoritarian draconian, like Orwellian tracking system. Um, and so, so that yes, hundred percent. Like that, that's that's the bottom line for this. And I, I would add one other thing though, with the with like why the vaccines, right? Because there's other. I imagine there's other stratagems for for getting us to sign on to ubiquitous digital ID. Uh, another one though is the emergence of this thing called precision medicine. It's basically a series. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Of, yeah. It's it's all gene based medicine, right? You're gonna tailor your medical treatments to various. Uh, D, uh, genetic signatures in your DNA. And there's actually another movement. I write about it in my book. It's called precision education. And they want to, uh, uh, this is a third realm of algorithms. So we had the thinking, cognitive behavioral, the feeling, or emotional, socio emotional learning. Uh, you could just basically tie this to, the, to your physiological data, your bio data. Uh, and they want to, uh, so before you even enter into any of the data mining software, we're going to look at your DNA. And in particular, we'll look at stuff like, you know, do you have particular cognitive disorders or disabilities? And they also, like your IQ. Right. And so you'll start with you'll, you'll, your baseline will start with your what they call your genetic IQ. Uh, and companies like 23 and Me have been, you know, if you if you give them your data and you check that box where you say you can study it, that's one of the things they've been working on. And this it is immediately tied back to the eugenics movement. Right. IQ tests literally come out of the eugenics movement back with the, you know, the, the Simon and Binet uh, IQ tests, they were used for what they called the feeble-minded uh, schools in, uh, in uh, the Vineland School over here in the United States. Uh, this is where you get terms like moron, idiot, imbecile. These were like medical, like statistical terms. So you have an average uh, IQ of uh, 100. That's like the median. And if every 10 points you would go below that, you would be in a different category, like moron, idiot, imbecile. And based on those categories, they would uh, they would force upon you eugenic sterilization. Uh, in the eighties, they tried to basically make a comeback with this stuff through the bell curve, and you got Charles Murray on that, who's been to Bilderberg meetings. Uh, and if you just look at the, um, the the end notes in the bell curve and look at a few areas where there's these long lists, like where the bulk of his sources come from, they come from people that were affiliated with this thing called the Pioneer Fund. Uh, you have people like Linda Gottfriedson, Arthur Jensen, Felipe J. Rushton, Richard Lynn, James Flynn. All these people, they were effective. they were essentially eugenic. Some of the people were explicitly eugenic. Like they said stuff like, you know, black people generally have lower IQs. So, you know, we should, um, you know, find ways to limit their reproduction. A lot of times they tried to emphasize like, they, they, they tried to stay away from, like, let's grab them and sterilize them. They'd be like, hey, let's incentivize that they go get a vasectomy. We'll give them, like, a thousand bucks, right? And like, trying to, you know, what they called, quote-unquote, positive eugenics for the, for what was, what was called mental hygiene. So
0: Yeah, well, there's some people like um, James Watson, uh, who is uh, known for allegedly discovering the structure of DNA. It was a... Uh, most likely actually a woman working in his lab and then he and Francis Crook took credit for it. But anyway, um, (laughs) James, uh, James Watson was like on BBC, I think, uh, up until like 2008 or 2010 saying exactly that, that certain ethnic minorities um, are genetically inferior. And he was still being uh, toasted and praised by top science officials in the US, including the Top science official in the United States right now, Eric Lander, uh, who toasted James Watson in 2018 and was like, that guy, man, he's awesome. The guy that, you know, most of us most recently remember for saying um, that people of African descent are genetically inferior. He's great. And, you know, uh, we have him holding the top science posts in the Biden administration right now, uh, which is, you know, supposedly uh, diverse and great um and and fabulous. Uh so um yeah th- this this type of mentality is unfortunately um and and I I've I've tried to show this in my work as much as possible. It's actually very pervasive um in these uh, particular elite circles that tend uh these days uh to dominate um politics. Uh, in academia, uh, the uh, science and health-related agencies of the U.S. I mean, that's why like we're having people like Zika Manuel being promoted to uh, lead the FDA um, <laughs> at some point. Uh, and he's uh, he's totally insane. Um, if you think Eric Lander's bad, uh, just just wait <laughs> until you learn about Zika Manuel. Um, so, you know, I mean, it's pretty nuts where we are um, at this point. Um, and I think um, education is a really uh, good, uh, I guess, microcosm, I guess you could say, to look at these broader agendas, because if we're not willing to stop this, uh, protect, to protect, like, the youth of today, we won't protect, we won't, we won't do it for anyone, you know? Um, so I think the more we can expose what's going on here and how our kids are 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 essentially being, um, you know, used, uh, data mined, and, and, like, having their their brains like harvested. I mean, it sounds like really gross to put it that way. But I mean, that's really, uh essentially what's going on here, you know, and in, in, in trying to have the kids put in the slavery system first, and get them used to it. So they live the rest of their lives, you know, being used to this type of, you know, technocratic uh slavery, you know, I mean, if we won't if we won't say, uh, no, thanks, when it comes to the kids, you know, we won't really say it for anyone.
1: Yeah. And I want to just say this, uh, you know, what what actually got me even writing about this type of stuff, you know, a long time ago was, uh, it's embarrassing to say that I got almost all the way through undergrad and never knew what eugenics was. No one taught me in high school. No one taught me in middle school. No one taught me all the way through undergrad. You heard about racial justice all the time, but we didn't talk about the most racist thing in history. Uh, And then when I discovered not only that Like it was a a real thing, but the right uh, American corporations, Rockefeller Foundation, IBM, were literally funding uh, the the Nazi eugenic regime um, through the Kaiser Wilhelm Institute. You had Prescott Bush through Union Banking Corporation also funding the Nazi regime, IBM processing the concentration camp data. you know, I, I, and then I discovered that stuff like the American Eugenic Society, well, that still exists. It's just called the Society for Social Biology. Uh, at one point, it was called, like, uh, Biodemography and Social Biology, but at this point, I think it's just Social Biology, and then the journal is called Social Biology, which used to be Eugenics Quarterly. Uh, you know, uh, the, Galton, uh, the Galton Institute, which was formerly the British Eugenic Society, that was a uh, you know that still exists, and it only changed its name, <laughs> in, like the '80s. And but when I saw that, and I saw that these uh, institutions—by the way, uh, you mentioned James Watson. He—he's at Cold Spring Harbor Laboratory. That's Charles Davenport. Charles Davenport. He had correspondence with people like Fritz Lenz and uh, uh, and um, uh, Bauer over there in uh, at the Kaiser Wilhelm Institutes, right? Uh, and was was he wrote books explicitly on eugenics when I when I saw that. I had gotten all the way through undergrad without them mentioning it and that the the institution still existed just with different names. What I immediately intuited was that this is, this is the game plan. They want to bring this stuff back and they want to do it in a sneaky way. They want to rebrand it. They want to change the rhetoric so that we don't see it as the same thing. Uh, And, you know, that is really the mechanism, you know, we we talked a little bit about, you know, like left, right divisions before we started the show today. Um, you know, I think that's the one thing that that is not left or right. That is easy to pin down. It's eugenics and it's technocracy. It's social engineering on a, on a massive uh, scale. And, and and so you know that is uh, I think that's 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 the key to to the whole project, in my opinion.
0: Right. And, you know, as, as you've mentioned in your articles, and some of uh, my articles earlier this year mentioned it too, uh, the, a lot of the leaders of the eugenics movement, well, like Julian Huxley is the person that coined uh, the term transhumanism in his book, as you as you mentioned earlier, uh, head of the British Eugenics Society, and then first director general of UNESCO, a lot of these uh, elite circles and, and different groups uh, overlap considerably. Another important quote I think of uh, Julian Huxley that's worth mentioning here is about eugenics. I think it was like a year or two uh, after the end of World War II about eugenics. He said, we must make the unthinkable thinkable again. And what better way uh, to do that than, you know, use your hacks and public relations to essentially rebrand what is um, uh, race sciences, you know, uh, health (laughs) care and uh, all of this stuff that's been going on. you know in in the decades since. Uh, uh well john i think uh we are uh coming close to uh the end of uh uh the podcast here in terms of uh, my personal um <clears throat> time limitations for today uh but is there anything else you'd like to to add uh or or discuss that we haven't touched on already and if not uh where can people uh, find your work uh, find your book and how can they support you
1: Okay, so um, you can go to my website to find my book and all the the other work that I'm doing. Um, obviously, you can find my most recent articles at Unlimited Hangout. My my website though is SchoolWorldOrder.info. Uh, there's a link to Trying Day uh, there, so you can get the book straight from Trying Day. It's on Amazon as well, but you know it's it's better for everybody to not feed the Amazon monster. But, you know, yeah, you do get a sense of, you know, uh, how the book's selling when people buy it off, off Amazon. Uh, but that's where you can get the book. Um, you know, I'm trying to do some more media stuff on, uh, I got a shoot channel in and in a, in a YouTube. Go to the Bitchute because I'm sure they'll shut down the YouTube eventually, but I'm using it until they do that. Um, and so you can check out some video reports there. Uh, if you'd like to otherwise support my research, um, I've been building a web brain database. Interactive. It's got all sorts of notes and summaries, including a bunch of uh, rare documents that I gathered from Charlotte Thompson Iserbyt when I was visiting with her. She had thirty-six file cabinets full. Literally, took me a hundred hours just to pull the stuff out and put it in boxes in a relatively organized manner like so i i I scan up new stuff every week so if you subscribe to that it's like uh, it's five dollars a month like 20 20 cents a day um for a lot of uh, documents that you can't get elsewhere mapped out in terms of all the connections that we laid out here you can kind of get a visual sense of how all these different companies and government agencies and uh, oligarchs and technocrats are sort of interconnected uh, and then you can, like I said, you can, you can get some documents there that you can't get elsewhere. Um, and you know, and it helps support my research. Um, so that way, you know, I could hopefully, uh, you know, do, do some more of this type of research and, uh, teach maybe a couple less classes as, as an adjunct. I have to basically do a double load, uh, is in comparison to like a tenure track person. So, uh, you know, if I could do, teach a few less classes, Um, You know, I can I can pump out some more articles for everybody and do some more of those video reports. Uh, So those are um, those are the ways that you can support me, find my book and uh, keep up with everything I'm doing.
0: All right. Well, great. Uh, Thanks for your work and uh, for your time today, Uh, because uh, even though I like to take the time to read long form stuff, I know. uh, (laughs) As someone who produces long form work themselves, a lot of times there are some people that. Uh, just um, don't really go for that and are more likely to absorb the information when (laughs) uh, it's an audio or video format. So hopefully uh, this helps people who haven't um, taken the time to read your uh, great reports on Unlimited Hangout and or your book, Um, you know, gives them some um, visibility into the great work that you have been doing. Uh, With that being said, uh, yeah, thanks a lot for coming on. Much appreciated. And I greatly appreciate Unlimited Hangout subscribers. Uh, Thank you so much for supporting this podcast, which, like a lot of my other stuff that goes out on uh, Rockfin and and other platforms, um, is paywalled for the first couple days and then, of course, public uh, and publicly uh, available for free to everyone after uh, the paywall expires, after, um, you know, those couple days pass. Uh, So, a thanks to everyone who supports my work because, um, you know, some some of us in this particular line of work have been uh, targeted financially for our content being deplatformed, uh, you know, uh, on Patreon in my case. Uh, but it's, it's been affecting a lot of people. Looks like particularly those that had continued to rely on uh, YouTube, uh, especially uh, recently, have been getting, uh, uh, been feeling the squeeze uh, much more than, than before even. So um, thanks to everyone that, that supports uh, this podcast and we'll catch you all next time.